Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 1, or chapter 2, I'm sorry. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things that you and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, in unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Father, we ask for the, your blessing um, on your word, Lord, you have settled your word. It's forever established in the heavens. And we pray that you would give us understanding. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for you. God, we commit this time to you. We pray for Pastor Jonathan. Strengthen him. Use him to be faithfully teaching and preaching your word. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see that. Well, brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be together with you again this morning. And, uh, <laughs> It's amazing the panoply of emotions that one experiences coming to this pulpit of fear and trepidation, wanting to uh, rightly divide the word of God so that he is honored. And yet balanced with that fear and trepidation is joy. Uh, joy in the Lord, that we are drawing near to him and he is drawing near to us in his word. And so it is in that spirit that um, I come before you this morning. And we are now turning to another chapter. Of course, this is one long letter that Paul wrote to the Romans. But we have a chapter division here from 1 to 2. And we really started, I would say, um, 
this next big section of the letter several weeks ago when we were in Romans 1, 16 and 17 concerning the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek or for the Gentile. Um, and we spent three weeks looking at the wrath of God, how it is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Um, that is directed at the nations of the world, on everyone, really, if you want to think about it that way. Everyone is under the wrath of God. That's the teaching of Romans 1, 18 through 32. And we know that he's been addressing the Gentiles because back in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So he is primarily, has been primarily addressing the nations with his letter to this point. And he goes on to say that the truth of God is suppressed by the Gentiles. What God reveals of himself that he is and what his incredible attributes are, he reveals in his creation for all to see. And the Gentiles we see, all men really, suppress that truth. They hold it back. They will not let it return. That is to say, the knowledge of God, they will not return in praise and thanksgiving to him. And so we see that God gives them over. And we looked at this idea of God giving one over as equivalent to the wrath of God. It's a judicial abandonment by God. And that God turns them over to all kinds of wickedness within their heart to be consumed by the lust of their own hearts. And we see that it even goes so far as to what he calls vile passions, referring to homosexual relations, which were common in the Gentile world. And so his point really in verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1 is the Gentiles need justification. The gospel goes out to all. It's the power of God to save everyone. And the Gentiles need salvation. And now, as we get into chapter 2, he turns his attention to another group of people, namely the Jews. And he says really the same thing. The Jews need justification as well. And so I want to show three principles of God's judgment this morning. And this is probably going to be another multi-part series on the judgment of God. But just the first three principles of God's judgment that we have in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. The first is... God's judgment is righteous. It's righteous. The second is God's judgment is inescapable. And the third is God's judgment is imminent. Imminent meaning it is certain to come. So let's look together at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So Paul just finished explaining that the wrath of God is upon all the Gentiles for all their ungodly and unrighteous behavior. The Jews reading this would be the first to agree. He would say, that's right. Those nations of the world are pagan. They are condemned by God. But here Paul is about to show that the state of the Jews 
is just as bad as the state of the Gentiles and to their great dismay, actually worse. Why? Because they've been given more light than the Gentiles. They have the oracles of God, as we're going to see at the beginning of chapter three. We, each one of us this morning, we may not think that we're as depraved as the Gentile nations that we read about. And that long list of 21 gross sins, um, that may be difficult for some of us to identify with. But the wrath of God, make no mistake, is upon you too. That's the, the plain teaching of scripture. His wrath abides on all of us. And we're all moving headlong, that is to say, apart from Christ, into judgment, a condemning judgment. So he directs this portion of the letter to the Jew. You see that in verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. So when he says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, he is really addressing the Jews. And I would say by extension, he's addressing every self-righteous, externally religious, moral person. So that captures a lot of people. And to those, he says, you are inexcusable. That is to say, you are guilty before God, condemned and under his condemnation. And why? Well, the reason he gives is this. O man, whoever you are who judge. What is it that the self-righteous are doing? They are judging others. Something that God expressly prohibits in his word. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, this is part of the, this is the latter part of the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to read verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So <clears throat> he's talking about judging and he says, don't judge. But the question of course that comes up and this is a portion of scripture that people will often recite in kind of a universal way. Don't judge. Don't give any kind of judgment. Judgment is never allowed. Is that what he's saying? What is he actually condemning in this judging idea? Well, we know from verse 16 in the same chapter, he says, you will know them by their fruits. Speaking of false teachers, false prophets, do men gather grapes and thorn of thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So he's calling us to think, to use our minds, to exercise what we call discernment to know what is right and what is wrong. So he's clearly not saying shut your mind off and don't ever use any kind of discernment. And in John 7, 24, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So there is a kind of judgment that God expects us to use, and that is discernment. But the kind of judgment that he is condemning is just the same. Condemning judgment 
a judgment that would hold someone else in condemnation, that would pronounce a judgment upon them that only God can pronounce. We see the same idea in Romans chapter 14, where Paul says, don't judge your brother in food or drink, matters like that. And the context is, don't despise your brother. Don't think less of him for the particular food or drink that he partakes of. Why? Because we are one family in God. We are the church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. He has purchased us with his own blood. So don't despise God or his body. Love the brethren. That's the kind of judgment he is talking about. Don't condemn. Don't despise. Don't tear down. This is a good distinction, I think, if you think about these two ideas of judgment and discernment. Condemning judgment tears down always. When you feel, this is something we talked about on a Wednesday night in a, in a Bible study uh, led by Pastor Stan. When you, how do you know the difference between um, Satan accusing you of sin and the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin? And I think the simple answer is this. The Holy Spirit of God will never tear you down. He convicts in order to build you up, in order to correct and put you on the right path. The devil will always condemn in order to tear you down and cause you to despair. That's why we sang the song this morning. Before the throne of God, I have a great, a perfect plea. I have a great high priest who pardons me. I look to him when I'm in despair. So those, that's, this is the kind of judgment that is condemned. Condemning others. Don't judge in that way. Um, think of Luke chapter 18. We talked about this recently. The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee and the tax collector go up to the temple to pray. And what does the Pharisee say? He says, thank you, God. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Right? And he's looking at this tax collector. That's the condemning attitude that God does not want us to have. It's the spirit that hopes for the worst in others. It's a malicious spirit like we see in Romans 129 when we talked about that long list of vices last week. Those who are always on the lookout for fault in others. These are people who expect to find fault. They enjoy finding fault. In fact, they're disappointed when they don't find fault in others. These are people who are violent. That's another word used in Romans 1.30, meaning they have excessive pride that leads them to treat others with contempt. They think very highly of themselves. They're proud. It's another word used in that list. They, they just want to outshine everyone else. Uh, the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a doctor who was also a, a great preacher, he said this, the spirit really manifests itself in the tendency to pronounce final judgment upon people as such. This spirit really manifests itself in the tendency to pronounce final judgment upon people as such. This means that it is not a judgment so much on what they do or believe or say as upon the persons themselves. It is a final judgment upon, excuse me, upon that that individual and what makes it so terrible is that at that point it is irrigating itself something that belongs to god end quote 
Um, this is the same spirit we see in James and John. Remember when Jesus and they are walking on the road, they're going to the villages of the Samaritan cities, and they say, Lord, why don't you just rain down fire on these people? Just condemn them. They're wicked. Or Jonah, when he was angry at the preaching of Nineveh, he preached and they responded in faith. They turned, they repented of their sin, and it says that Jonah was angry. Jonah knew that God was merciful and that he could save them, and he didn't want that. He had the wrong spirit, the spirit of judgment. And it's also the, the picture of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, who was angry when his father threw a feast and killed the fatted calf when the younger prodigal brother returned home, right? This is the kind of judgment that God despises. And so he says, you are inexcusable, O man. You, whoever you are, who judge. Inexcusable. In other words, if you can condemn someone else, if you have enough knowledge to condemn another person, you have enough knowledge to condemn yourself, to assess that the same is true of yourself. If the Gentiles who had received general revelation were under the wrath of God, as we read in Romans 1, for suppressing the truth and exchanging God for the lie, how much more inexcusable are the Jews who not only had general, general revelation, but special revelation? They had the oracles of God, the word of God given to them. And so why did they put themselves in the place of the judge? That's really what they're doing, right? When they're judging another, they are seating themselves upon the throne of God and pronouncing his judgment. Well, they had the law. But rather than applying it to themselves, they applied it to others. They used it as a tool. They knew God's will and they said, this applies to all of you. You are guilty. But they couldn't see it in their own hearts. Brothers and sisters, the reason why we have blind spots when it comes to judging ourselves, to seeing the true condition that we are in before God, to see us as God sees us, is because oftentimes we judge on the horizontal plane. We compare ourselves with other people. We don't compare ourselves with God's standard. And the second reason is we follow the letter of the law and not the spirit of what God intends all along. That was the trap that the Jews fell into. They would say, in your heart, then you've committed the very act of adultery with her. That's the spirit of the law that was intended all along. The Jews would say, well, I'm not a murderer. I haven't physically killed anyone. But are you guilty of hating your brother? And if so, just as Jesus elucidated, the same is true. Hatred in the heart leads to murder. So in God's eyes, you're a murderer as well. They would say, I'm not an, an idolater. But the question is, in self-righteousness, have you become an idolater yourself by fashioning an idol in your mind? An idea of what God is like in the way that it's okay to serve him? How you think it's okay to serve him? If so, then you're an idolater. They may not slander openly, but they sure whisper and gossip in others' ears. They'll say that they honor their parents. But when it comes to financially supporting them, they say, 
I don't have to do that because I'm giving this money to the Lord and they'll let their parents suffer in poverty. You see, they condemn themselves to judge and practice the same things. They don't see that they've totally violated the spirit of what God has uh, commanded. And so this question comes to us as well, right? Are we guilty of these things? I can tell you that I certainly have been. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 um, is the account when Nathan, the prophet, comes to David, the king, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and put her husband Uriah on the front line of battle, effectively murdering him. And I'm just going to read the first seven verses here. Second Samuel chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. And then David said to, excuse me, Nathan said to David, verse 7, you are the man. You are the man. Um, <laughs> did David have right judgment? He heard the, the parable and he was quick to condemn this fictitious man until he found out that it was him that Nathan was talking about. See, David didn't see his blind spot until Nathan pointed it out by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Whenever man puts himself in the place of God as executioner, he only condemns himself because he himself is unrighteous and ungodly. So his judgments, too, are sinful. He doesn't have the ability to judge impartially. He's not objective. Isn't that exactly the lie that the serpent put to Adam and Eve when he said, that you can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you do, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. They believed that they could be like God, knowing good and evil, that they could know evil the way God knows evil. And what was the cunning of the serpent? That when they ate, they didn't know evil objectively as God does, but they became evil themselves. That's how they knew evil. So... The judgment of man is an unrighteous judgment. That's the point. It's not like the judgment of God. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 2 of Romans, let's back to Romans chapter 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. So this is the first principle of God's judgment. It is this, the judgment of God is righteous. The judgment of God is righteous. And note this, it is according to truth. 
but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. In other words, we who have the mind of Christ, we who know the truth, know that God's judgment is according to truth. And as we follow Paul's logic from chapter one, he just got done saying that the Gentiles exchanged the truth of God or the truth that is God, who is God, for the lie. So the truth is just another name for God himself. He is the truth. In other words, he is the standard by which all things are judged. He doesn't judge by another man's standard. He judges by himself, by truth. Men will often swear by someone greater than themselves in order to establish authority. But we're told in the scriptures that when God had made a promise to Abraham, it was because he could swear by no one greater, so he swore by himself. He himself is the authority. He is the truth. He is the standard of righteousness and justice. And what does God say about judgment and justice? Isaiah chapter 61, verse 8. Listen to Isaiah. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. God loves justice. He loves righteousness. Why? Because he loves himself. That may sound strange to some of you. But if God is truth and righteous and righteousness, and he is, then he loves himself. He loves what is good and holy, and that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So people measure themselves by the wrong standard all the time. But then we are reminded that God's standard is the truth. It is also put this way by Jesus. He says, therefore, you shall be what? Perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. He's also called by James, the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The idea of shadow is the idea of darkness or sin. There is no darkness. There is no sin in God. He is consistent. He is light. He is pure light. I love how Moses put it in his song in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses three and four. He said, I will publish the name of the Lord Ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is our rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. And listen to David as he praises God in Psalm 145, verse 17. He says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And Jeremiah uses an, a very interesting phrase in chapter 50, verse 7. He says, the Lord is the habitation of justice. The habitation of justice. Why? So that his people might shelter in him. Hmm. And in Revelation 15, verse 3, we learn that the host of heaven exclaims, great and marvelous are your works. Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways. Thou King of Saints. Hmm. So God is truth. He is right. He defines what is right. And he judges everything by that standard. He judges according to the truth of himself, you might say. He also judges according to the truth of man. Right? Do you remember what the Lord said to Samuel, the prophet in 1 Samuel 16? He said, the Lord 
does not see as man sees, looking on the outward appearance. The Lord looks upon what? The heart. The heart. He is no respecter of persons. That's a way of saying he doesn't show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism to anyone. Hmm. So brothers and sisters, we have works that we do. Works in scripture can be words that we say, can be deeds that we do, can be thoughts that we think. And all of those things, God sees. He reads the heart and the motive, right? We can't do that. That's why we're not good judges. We can see somebody's works in terms of their deeds. We can hear what they say, but we can never see the motive in the heart. It can't be right. But God doesn't have that limitation. And so Paul says, let God be true and every man a liar. God is always truth. And we are not. We are unrighteous. We have blindness. Hmm. So the judgment of God is righteous. It's according to truth. And the second principle is this. The judgment of God is inescapable. Inescapable. Look at verse 3 of Romans 2. And do you think this, O man, who judge those practicing that you will escape the judgment of God? You stand condemned. He says, so why would you think that God would exempt you from judgment? Is it because you're not as bad as other people? Are you comparing yourself with the standard of other people? It's the wrong standard. Hmm. Why would God exempt anyone? And to this group of people, to the Jews in particular, He's saying perhaps and they also had a direct descendancy to. And so they trusted in those privileges. They believed their privileged position meant that God would show them partiality. That's where they went wrong in their thinking. But we have the, the privilege of God. He's not going to treat us the same as he treats the nations of the world. We are separate. And in a sense, that was true. They were separate. But possessing the law is not the same thing as doing the law. That's where that broke down for them. Listen to this quote by Matthew Henry. He said, respect to persons is a doctrine which we all are sure of, for he would not be God if he were not just. But it behooves those especially to consider it who condemn others for things which they themselves are guilty of. And so while they practice sin and persist in that practice, think to bribe the divine justice by protesting against sin and exclaiming loudly on others that are guilty as if preaching against sin would alone, excuse me, would atone for the guilt of it. As if preaching against sin would atone for the guilt of it. That was their fatal error. Possessing is not the same thing as keeping the law. And in that way, they were guilty of bribing divine justice paying homage to God in their own way of how they would serve him, but totally missing the point of the law, which was what? To amplify sin. The law came in that sin might be shown for what it is, exceedingly sinful. That was the point of, of the law. And they turned it into a tool to judge others and not to examine themselves. Brothers and sisters, 
what do you think God thinks about bribery? Because look, we can all at times have this same mentality of paying homage to God in the way we want to serve him. But the question is, how does God demand to be served? In Deuteronomy 10, 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. In other words, God can't be bought. He can't be coerced in any way. And he holds the same standard for his people. In the same book, Deuteronomy 16, verse 19, he says, You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Bribery is a perversion of justice. That's why God will not accept any bribe. You know, today being Reformation Sunday, as I mentioned at the beginning, today, um, October 31st, but back in the year 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, big long document with 95 complaints that he had against the Catholic Church, particularly against their sale and support of what were called indulgences. And he nailed that document to the door of the church at Wittenberg. And the idea of these indulgences um, was astounding and despicable to Martin Luther. These indulgences were letters of merit, certificates that were written by the Catholic Church, endorsed to say the owner of this document has merit, righteousness. And the righteousness would come from what they called the treasury of merit. They believed that that treasury was filled with the good works of Jesus Christ, of the Virgin Mary, who they believe was sinless, and of all the saints. And so it was a storehouse of all of this righteousness, if you will. And you could appropriate that for yourself or for a loved one who had departed, who was in, quote unquote, purgatory, a place of temporary uh, torment until they could earn enough merit, righteousness, that God would accept them into heaven. I mean, this is not what scripture teaches at all. This is a total distortion and a blasphemy of scripture. But I just wanted to share something from this catechism of the Catholic Church in this regard. Listen to this, quote, This treasury of merit includes, as well as the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, they are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God, referring to the merits, the works. In this treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord, and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission in the unity of the mystical body, end quote. So Luther, when he had become a monk, um, made the long trip from Erfurt, Germany, 639 miles all the way to the celestial city, to Rome, on foot. And when he got there, um, no doubt extremely exhausted, he scaled the Escala Sancta, or Scala Sancta, the Holy Steps, um, 28 steps, I think, in all, on his knees to get to the top. And when he got to the top, he found a Catholic friar with a box. And Martin Luther dropped his coins in the box and the friar gave him a letter of indulgence saying that what you just did, walking all this distance and climbing the steps and 
your good work now counts from the treasury of merit um, toward your salvation. And Luther held the document and he thought, can God really be bought? Can the salvation of a soul be bought from God? Would God be pleased with that? And he was deeply troubled because the question always arose, well, how much is enough? How much merit do I need until God says, check, you have enough to get in now? And so Martin Luther was haunted by constantly needing to confess his sins. He would go to confession for six hours at a time, multiple days a week. And his confessor would say in frustration, Martin, come back when you have some real sins to confess. Something substantial like adultery. Because these little peccadillos that you are confessing are wearying me and, and your God. Martin had this, this lack of settling in his mind. He, he was deeply concerned with his own sin. He never knew if he had confessed enough. He would leave the confession and he would remember something he'd forgotten. And, and that would just deeply trouble him. Until he came to Romans chapter 1 verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And God opened his eyes to see that the righteousness that he was seeking is the very righteousness that God himself provides by faith in his son, by just receiving it, by believing God. That's what is required to enter heaven. There is no merit or treasury of merit that we can appropriate apart from Christ's merit, appropriated through faith, just by believing that he is God's salvation. He is who he said he was and that God raised him from the dead. So back to verse three of Romans two. And do you think this, O man, who you, excuse me, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. You can fool people. Children, you can fool your parents. Hmm. Right? Um, but God knows the heart. God knows and records every deed that you ever do. And he requires an accounting of all those deeds. We can never escape the judgment of God. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees all. He, from heaven, can see the hearts of men. He sees our motives. We can't hide anything from him. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, 11 and 12, If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. It's the same idea. You cannot hide from God. He sees all. His gaze pierces all. And he calls everyone to account for the deeds done in the body. Verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Despise. Kata froneo means to think against, literally. And the idea is to think little of something to think nothing of something, to disdain. That's the idea. And what is it that is despised 
Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Goodness, Christotis, it means, um, it's actually the translation of the Old Testament word chesed. Chesed is the loving kindness, the faithfulness, and the mercy of God. That's the same word that he's using here in the New Testament for goodness. It's the mercy of God. In other words, it's not goodness in the sense of good versus bad. It's goodness in the sense of not giving us what we deserve. In Psalm 25, verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. There it is. Goodness is his mercy toward us. Forbearance, forbearance is self-restraint. It means to hold oneself back from war. It's, the context is that of a truce. I will not fight. I will lay down my arms and hold restraint. And long-suffering, macrothemia, great patience. Themia, patience, macro patience, <laughs> big time patience. This refers to the duration of time that God is willing to show his goodness and his self-restraint. And so he says, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? I don't know about you, but this is a breath of fresh air, brothers and sisters. We're in a difficult portion of scripture talking about the wrath of God, and now we're talking about the judgment of God. And yet in the midst of this, we have his goodness his forbearance, his long suffering. He is good. He is merciful to thousands. Praise the Lord. And I think it's interesting that Paul describes his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering as a treasury. He says the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering. Listen to Psalm 31, 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. This is God's treasury. It's the treasury of his goodness, self-restraint and long suffering, which he's pouring out on mankind to lead people to what? Repentance, repentance. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? <laughs> Do you realize that God's, God is long-suffering and good and forbearing to you? Think about your life. Think about all the sins that you've committed. God in his righteousness has the prerogative to bring instant death upon anyone who sins. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Immediate, swift judgment is what is deserved. So the fact that God has withheld judgment, he has given space, he has shown mercy, is his goodness toward you, toward me. Why? Because he wants repentance. This is the purpose of God's goodness. It's not to destroy us. It's ultimately to cause us to turn to him. I want to just share a couple of thoughts about this. One is the goodness. The goodness can take this form of withholding judgment, as we've talked about. He's showing mercy. He's not giving us what we deserve. And I think we can all understand that. 
That's exactly the sentiment that Peter gives in 2 Peter 3.9 when he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Makrothimia. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I think that's pretty clear. He gives space. He gives mercy for us to repent. He doesn't exact judgment on us right away. But have you thought about this? That God's goodness can take the form of chastisement in order to affect repentance. We've been doing a, a study on Wednesday nights in Psalm 51. And Dr. R.C. Scroll has referenced Psalm 32 in the same connection with David where he says, when I kept silent, this is Psalm 32, 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. He felt the heavy hand of God upon him. He felt crushed because of his sin. And he had no relief until he confessed his sin. God crushed him in order to bring him to repentance. We saw an illustration of that earlier with Nathan too, right? He put his finger in David's chest and he said, you are the man. And then he repented. Brothers and sisters, it's the striking, it's the crushing of God. The trial, generally speaking, if you want to think about it in those terms, the trials that God has for us that he uses to get our attention, doesn't he? David had to be crushed before he was brought to repentance. Same was true of King Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about him a few weeks back. Remember, he was walking around his palace and he said, is this not great Babylon that I have built? And... There was a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And that very hour, God turned him into uh, an insane person. He was out in the field like a wild animal, like an ox eating grass for seven years. And at the end of the time, God gave him his senses back. He came to himself. He repented. He looked up to heaven, the scripture says. And his reason returned to him. So there again, we have the heavy hand of God, but it leads to repentance. Or consider the prodigal son. What happened with him? He went out and squandered his father's inheritance, right? And then what happens? A pestilence, excuse me, a famine happens. The Lord brings famine so that not only is this young man out of money, resources to take care of himself, but now God brings pressure with a famine. And so he, this good Jewish boy, finds himself in the, in the, in the, the uh, you know, out in the field with the pigs, with the unclean animals. And he's so hungry that he wants to eat the very pods that the pigs are eating. But then this wonderful thing, and he came to himself. God gave him repentance. He turned in his thinking, realizing I don't have any resources of my own. And he became very much like a little child, didn't he? He came to the end of himself and he said, I will go to my father and I'll just become like one of his hired servants. I'll renounce myself as a son and just become a hired servant because they have bread enough and to spare. He was crushed, but God was using it to bring him to repentance. And I'm sure some of you may have the same kind of a testimony. 
how God brought you to the end of yourself. God stripped your, your self-reliance, the things that you were trusting in, and it got your attention, and he caused you to call out to him for salvation. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. We talk about this quite a bit in this church because it's important. Repentance means a change of mind. It means to turn away from yourself, your sins, and turn toward God. It's a complete turnabout from one direction to another. And the scripture teaches that there's different kinds of repentance. There's a repentance that's false. It's a sorrow, but it's a worldly sorrow. It's a sorrow over being caught. It's the, ch the child who has his hand in the candy jar or the cookie jar and he's caught. Oh, I'm sorry, but he's not really sorry. The kind of sorrow that leads to repentance is a godly sorrow. It leads to salvation. So the purpose of God's goodness is to bring about repentance. And although in this context to the Jew, this is really talking about salvation, conversion, an initial repentance. The same is true of the whole of, of the Christian life. The whole of the Christian life is to be marked by constant repentance and faith. Why? Because we are to persevere to the end. Constantly turning from ourselves, constantly turning to Christ. Turn, if you will, to Romans 8, just chapter 8, verse 28. Many of you probably have this memorized, but this is important in this connection with the goodness of God. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And people will read that and they will say, um, all things work together for good. And they think of that in terms of what I think to be good. God is only going to do good to his people. But is that the goodness that he's talking about there? We can't stop at verse 28. You have to keep reading. Look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Loved ones, the reason why God causes all things to work together for good, what is he working toward? Conforming us to the image of his son. That's the goal. The goal is to change us from wickedness to righteousness. And that is a painful process. It's a process where God is going to spank us like a good heavenly father does. This is the chastisement of God, but it's always meant to bring us to a position of repentance, to turn back to him, to trust him, to see his goodness and rejoice in him for it. I'm saying this to say, this is an important reminder as we think about things like disease in our lives, illness, um, loss of jobs, um, worrying about being able to provide for our families. There's a whole litany of things that come under the category of trials. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. These are all trials that God means for goodness, to lead us to repentance, so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ ultimately. 
In the hymn that we sang this morning, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, there's a great picture of repentance there. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face? And shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. There it is. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. And so, again, both the self-righteous Jew, outwardly religious individual, the Pharisee, as well as the pagan Gentile, they're all in need of repentance. We all are in need of repentance. But there is one deeper problem here, and that's verse 4, excuse me, verse 5 of Romans 2. Hmm. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Why is it that people don't see their own hypocrisy when they judge others and yet condemn themselves? Why is it that it's easier to see the speck in my brother's eye, but not to see the log, the moat, the beam in my own eye? And this is the answer, because you have a hard heart. Oh man, whoever you are who judge others and do the same. This is really the key verse to understanding this passage. He says, your hardness and your impenitent heart, in accordance with that, hardness means uh, stubborn. Callous. It's actually the Greek word sclerotis, from which we get atherosclerosis, the hardening of the arteries. So he's saying there's a hardening of the heart, a callousness about the heart, which is really at the center of the reason why you're being judged, why you can't discern properly and see hypocrisy in your own life. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 7. Ezekiel says, but the house of Israel would not listen to you because they would not listen to me, the Lord. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. This is the problem central to everyone born in this world. We're all hard-hearted. We inherit the sin of Adam and we're born with hard hearts. And because of that, when God reveals himself to us through creation, what do we do? We suppress the truth. And so God then gives us over to the hardness of that heart to become harder and harder over time. And unless he intervenes with the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, we are on our way to eternal destruction, to a final abandonment, not just a wrath that we can see in this hardening of the heart, and all the sins that accompany it, but a final abandonment when God will turn the sinner away from himself and say, depart from me, for I never knew you. But at the same time, loved ones, this is why the new covenant is such wonderful news, because God deals with the very problem that we all have, the hard heart. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. 
This is wonderful. God takes out the very hard heart that we all have, and instead he gives us a heart of flesh. In other words, a tender heart, a heart that can feel and is sensitive to God, not a heart that's calloused and hard against him. And remember, the heart is really the control center. It's what drives the person from inside. It controls everything, their thinking, their emotions, their will. That's the heart in Scripture. And so that's what's hard and stubborn and callous. And that's why those who practice wickedness not only know that they are deserving of death, but they continue to practice wickedness and they approve of everyone else who does the same. Their hearts are hard. Their eyes are blind. And Paul's saying here, in accordance with the hardness of your heart. In other words, according to the measure of the hardness of your own heart, you are treasuring up wrath for yourself. There's a principle here that God is clear about. The more one sins, the more one hardens his heart, and the more he heaps up to himself wrath The treasury of God's wrath is being filled up every time you sin. It's like you're throwing in more wrath against the day of wrath. This idea of a treasure is the idea of abundance. This treasury is full of the wrath of God. And because of it, it will never be exhausted. That's why hell is called hell. Because the wrath of God is continually poured out against all those who are judged eternally, condemned for their works, for their unrighteousness. Edward Payson, who was an American congregational preacher born 1783, he wrote a paper that was entitled Innumerable Monstrous Sins. And the whole point of that paper was to show that we sin in two main categories. We have sins of commission, which are things that we do, And we have sins of omission, which are things that we don't do, but that we ought to do. Like, for example, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do we do that every minute of every day? I don't. That's something that we ought to do, that we owe in our service to God. It's a sin of omission. And so you read this paper, and by the end, you're crushed. Because you realize, if you're honest with yourself, that you are a sinner through and through in what you do and in what you don't do. You're just heaping up more and more wrath in this treasury that's ultimately going to be poured out against you. And treasure, treasury also carries the idea of secrecy, right? Where is this treasure hidden? In Revelation 20, we read about the great white throne judgment. And at that judgment, something very specific happens. God opens books. Books are opened. And well, some believe that, we don't know for sure, but some believe that one of these books or some of these books represent the memory of God, what he is recording of all of our deeds that are stored forever in heaven. And the other is the book of his law. So he is going to compare our works, our deeds with what his word says. But thank God, apart from those books, there's, there's also another book, and it's called the Book of Life. That Book of Life has the names of every one of his saints recorded, even from before the foundation of the world. It's recorded in heaven. It's settled there. And those whose names are written in that book will never come into condemnation. They have passed from death 
to life. We're going to talk about this next week, Lord willing. They will be judged. We all will be judged. We'll stand before the Lord. But the judgment that we will stand before the Lord for is not a judgment for our own sins. It's a judgment of rewards. Rewards given out for faithfulness. But the judgment upon the works is what is to be feared. Because all of us work unrighteousness. And unless we stand in the righteousness of Christ, again, by faith, trusting in his merit, his work alone, God will not accept any other works, but he will condemn them. They will all be burned up. So the third principle from this verse is this. The judgment of God is imminent. Imminent. That means it is sure to come. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, that means unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a day coming. That is, a, It's called the great day in Scripture. It's the final day. It's the great white throne judgment. Listen to Acts, Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So there's a day coming. He's going to judge all. And Jesus Christ is the one who has been appointed by God to be the judge. Matthew 16, 27, for the son of man will come in the glory of his fathers with the angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. That refers to the same great day. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or or bad. God will judge the secrets of all men by Jesus Christ. He is the one who has been appointed as the judge. And what is it, brothers and sisters, that that day will reveal, as Paul says here? What is it that's revealed? Listen to one more. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So what is it that this day will reveal? Well, it's going to reveal the wrath of God and it's going to reveal the righteous judgment of God. Those who are judged will all know that they were being judged with righteous judgment in the presence of the Lamb, Christ. So in closing, listen to this quote from Matthew Henry. This righteous judgment of God is now many times concealed in the prosperity and success of sinners. But shortly it will be manifested before all the world. These seeming disorders set to rights. We, um, we sing the song, um, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. And I love that song. Um, but there is something in that song that I think is problematic. The idea talks about marvelous, infinite grace. God's grace is infinite in the sense that it's greater than our sins, that 
His grace can overcome any sin. No sinner is beyond the reach of the grace of our God. But it's not infinite in the sense of duration. There is a day coming when his grace will end and when man will be called to the tribunal of God and all must come. The scriptures say that those who are outside of Christ will try to seek shelter in the mountains and will ask for the rocks to even come down and crush them because they don't want to face the wrath of the lamb. But all will be brought before the throne and all rights will be put, all wrongs will be put right. God will, in other words, to demonstrate his righteousness in a final sense. And for any of you who may not be in Christ this morning, if you decide to wait to see that revelation, I can tell you assuredly on the strength of scripture that it will be too late and that you will be destroyed. Because the scripture says, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. He will not clear the guilty. He is righteous. He will not just wink at sin and give a pass to anyone who has privileges like the Jews did or who think that they're good by their own works in comparison with other people, all wrongs will be put right and justice will be meted out. So again, the judgment of God is righteous. It's according to truth. It is inescapable. He looks upon the heart and he's recording every thought, word, and deed that we ever do. And it's imminent. There is a day appointed. It's marked on God's calendar. Known only to him. And it will surely come to pass. But don't forget this. God who is good. He is merciful. Has done something already to demonstrate his righteousness. He will demonstrate his righteousness at the last day. But he's already done something to demonstrate his righteousness. What is that? Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, there's a lot in that passage, but here's the point that I want you to go away with. God has made available to us justification, right standing with God, salvation by grace, by unmerited favor. And how is that? Because he has put his own son forward as a substitute for you and for me. And he shed his blood. In other words, he died taking the punishment of all his people upon himself on the cross. Look to the cross. All look to the cross. That is where the righteousness of God has been demonstrated already. This is the present time. He's saying, look to my son and see my righteousness there. The son of God. Who himself was perfect righteousness. And all who look to him in faith will be justified and God will be vindicated. He is both the just and the justifier. He is just because 
His justice has been met in Christ. Our sins have been punished. They're not overlooked. They're not dismissed. They're not winked at. They are all placed on the Son and punished fully at Calvary, at the cross. So God is just. He's a just judge. And he's the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He justifies you. He gives you right standing. And he has a perfect right and ability to do so because he's paid it all in his son. That's the gospel, loved ones. It's a perfect exchange. And for all who will receive that freely, to you, salvation belongs. Let's pray and give thanks to our God. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, we worship you and we praise you that you are holy and righteous and good. You are truth, Lord. Everything you do is right. And Father, when we look at ourselves and evaluate our condition before you, we have to conclude that we are liars and you are true. And we want you to be true, Lord. We want to um, confess your righteousness. And Father, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving that we have received forgiveness, pardon of sins in Christ at the cross. We look to him and we see your righteousness demonstrated. And Father, we accept by faith and by your grace this great gift that you have made available to all who will look to Christ and believe. Father, forgive us our sins. Forgive us, Lord, for um, not being faithful to you, for judging others with a wrong spirit, a spirit of condemnation. Father, help us to trust and entrust ourselves to you. You are the righteous judge who will vindicate all. And you call us to trust you, to entrust ourselves to you and to walk with you. Lord, forgive me my sins. Forgive me my weakness. I pray, Father, that despite my weakness, you would be glorified. For your word is great and your spirit is power. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.